So this is Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is God's word. And let's bow together in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we ask you this day, near Christmas, but together in your house with our brothers and sisters in Christ and our Bibles open, Lord, would you teach us from your word, perhaps something we've yet to see, draw us closer to you and uh, closer perhaps than we've ever been, but all for your glory. And we thank you for our good. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Well, there are two Sundays out of uh, the calendar year, as far as church goes, where you're practically guaranteed a rerun. Uh, That would be Easter or Christmas, because the passages that we're most familiar with having to do with Christmas or Easter uh, are not all over the Bible, though all the Bible points either forward or backward to them. But these memorable passages, Luke 2 probably being uh, the most familiar of all the Christmas passages, and when we do something like that, when it, it, maybe not the message itself, but the passage itself would be qualified as a rerun, then we need to make sure we don't watch it like a rerun. We know what's going to happen, but let's let's not let our heart hijack our mind. Even with all the tradition and the nostalgia, things that we remember back from when we were kids, uh, not just uh, sights and sounds, but smells as well. In fact, uh, I took a break, came out of the upstairs uh, room where I study and mark these things up right before uh, they're delivered. Somebody's cooking already. I don't know if it's a, a, a... party for afterward, but it smelled like Christmas, sounds like Christmas, looks like Christmas. We're reading the Christmas passage, so let's make sure we've got our thinking cap on too and see if we can't learn something perhaps we've never seen. 
this is easily divided into two sections. If, if, if you were paying attention when we read, uh, there's usually a, a paragraph heading. The birth of Jesus Christ is the first seven verses. Uh, the shepherds and the angels, which I'd like to call the announcement of the birth, is the second seven verses down to verse 14. So let's look at them in those two pieces. First of all, the birth. The record starts out with, in those days, which is a nice poetic way to describe this is a certain place in time. These are days where certain events took place, events where uh, we can go into history and find things carved on rocks that we dig up out of the ground and actually uh, point this time stamp uh, to these passages in Scripture as things that actually took place. Uh, Caesar Augustus had made a decree that went out from him that all the world should be registered. So think of this as a census, but a census that isn't as easy as filling out the paper that someone puts in your mailbox or that someone, after you haven't done it, comes to remind you that you should. This is where you pack your bags, go to the place where you came from, and register, probably with officials who are in all of these locations. If we keep reading... All went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, the one that's calling for the census is Caesar Augustus. That was the first Roman emperor. If you know your, your Roman history, this fellow's name was Gaius Octavius. The word Augustus was a title and was very significant and something new as far as leadership of Rome up to that point. After defeating uh, Antony and Cleopatra, you've probably heard of those folks or maybe remember that in school, even if you don't know what they did, you remember those names. Uh, Octavian was positioned to rule the empire after this defeat. He would need the help of uh, the Senate and the people, but he was going to rule the whole ball of wax, the whole republic. Augustus was a religious term that was given once this was complete. And it actually ascribed to his name deity. They thought of him having done so as being more than man, though less than a god. You may have remembered that set of other important people like Babe Ruth. It's supposed to be a joke. (laughs) Tough crowd this morning. So back to in those days. In those days, the doors of the temple of Janus were closed. Janus would have been the god of war in their pantheon of gods. Uh, When they had finished conquering the, the known world at the time, they closed those doors and lived under what was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There's no active wars going on because they've won it all, which would make a census not only safer but more practical And then they would know whom they have charge over. That would work as far as uh, control, uh, enlistments, uh, as as far as putting uh, their soldiers in different places, and most of all for taxing purposes. So this is going on. All went to be registered in uh, verse 4. Joseph, so we go from uh, kind of our thoughts with Rome and their global power down to one man who's a carpenter, also went up from Galilee down to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. So we're narrowing that focus. 
which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He's going there because that's where he came from, to be registered with Mary, which is his betrothed, who was with child. Now, Luke doesn't really give us any more specifics about what's all involved in in the city of David, Joseph and Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. But in that culture, that was a major problem. Uh, there was no such thing as a betrothed couple that's not married yet, but expecting a child. If we went over to Matthew's gospel, we read of an angel coming to visit Joseph to help him because being a just man, he'd already decided to put her away, which is a euphemism for divorce, but to do it privately because he didn't want to make it a spectacle. And a few generations earlier, that probably would have involved stoning because it was just never done. Uh, betrothal was, a, was far more serious than what we would call an engagement. You can break off an engagement, return the gifts. It's, it's not a small thing, but it can be undone. Betrothal was looked on as good as married, but there's this, this space of time where you're not. And you're certainly not doing what would result in the birth of a child. So the only way Joseph has to understand this is that she's been unfaithful. It takes an angelic visit to convince Joseph this isn't that at all. This is of the Holy Spirit. Now of all the people on the planet who would have a problem with that theologically would be the Jewish people. Because God created the universe out of nothing. And that's God, and we're his creation. There's no such thing as God being a man. To them, Augustus was a joke. There's, there's no such thing. He's just a man like any of the rest of us. So for them to swallow this is going to take quite the convincing. In fact, by the time Jesus begins to claim that he is God and man, that's when they decide they're going to hang him on a cross. Now, you've got all these prophecies that point to this, and they should have known if they'd paid attention to the prophets. But I say all that just to try to help us understand when we read the Christmas story, we're more, far more familiar with than any of these hearing this for the first time and what they would have thought about it. So from the perspective of mankind, it's all the people on the earth, these two that are mentioned, Mary and Joseph, have no more effect on Caesar Augustus or the Roman Empire, for that matter, than any of us would have on the President of the United States or the King of England. Uh, I don't want to go to Bethlehem and register. Too bad. It's law. You've got to do it. And everybody did it. All the world was to be taxed. And they go, and they move. You think, well, that's, that's power, right? But then if, if we read from part of the same book we have opened to Luke's gospel in the New Testament and would go backward to the prophet Micah. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. And it was read last week as part of the Christmas celebration. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, and specifically Bethlehem Ephrathah. There's more than one Bethlehem, and it was uh, important to find out which one. Who are little to be among the clans of Judah. This is a small town. Not too many important people came from that area. 
You shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. We believe this to be a prophecy that this Messiah, the chosen one to save Israel, comes from Bethlehem. So if the prophecy is pointing to Bethlehem, but Mary and Joseph come from Nazareth, well, how are they going to get to Bethlehem for this to work? And no one's really looking for this in real time. It, it's easier to look backward at it than forward at it. Kind of brings a new perspective to this whole thing. Who's powerful? Who's a nobody? So in those days, as Luke is telling the story, Caesar Augustus ruled the entire world. In those days, the Caesar was not only considered emperor, but also deity. But you look at this not from mankind's perspective, but the author of this book, let's just say the view from heaven, the more insignificant person in this unfolding drama is the emperor on the city of seven hills. And the most significant of personalities is a young girl who's carrying in her womb the Son of God, a God who's writing this story before the foundation of the world, but it's being played out in real time. And then you've got this just man who's decided not to put her away, and he's going to take care of her. Another way to look at it, quite the way to look at it. We keep on in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger. There's no place for them in the inn. Now, uh, you know how I like to ruin the Christmas story from time to time. It's kind of my thing. And lots of Christmas cards and even hymns that we sing, um, like We Three Kings. Were there? We know there were three gifts, but there's no specific mention of how many magicians brought those gifts. Were they kings? Probably more like advisors. But here's another one. We want to think of all the cartoons or cards or children's books that the reason why they stop off at the inn in Bethlehem is because, well, she's in labor, right? We want to make this as miserably dramatic as we possibly can. This verse ruins that. While they were there, where? Bethlehem. The time came for her to give birth. And the word in there is not the word that is used for the self-contained, standalone place with many rooms that people would pay in transit. It's another word that's far more like your family's house, but not necessarily, you know, the master bedroom it's full everybody's being registered the whole family has to come in and they're in less than optimal setting probably where they keep the animals and definitely where there's a manger so it's close but i just have to bring our 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 gaze back to the scriptures and make sure we're being faithful with them the point i think is this luke is marvelously simplistic both in the account of christ's birth and his death He's not as gruesome in his account as some preachers that I hear making it out to be, as if they feel the need to do so. The point of this passage is not how meager or horrible or unclean Christ's birth was. The point of the passage is that God came to this earth and was born as a baby and was put in a manger. That he's here is the big point. 
what he's lying in is certainly at least secondary. It's not primary. So that's the birth, and it's only seven verses, and it's a lot less details than we would like to have, but that's what we're given. Then there's the announcement in verse 8. In the same region, so not too far, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. That, um, I've heard speculation, and that's all we could say. Again, we're not told specifically, but because of the influx of people at Passover and the fact that you would rather buy a sacrificial lamb if you've got a very long journey, these may very well have been the temple flocks that were used for sacrificing. They may be actually tending sacrificial lambs uh, around the time of Passover when this takes place. What takes place? Oh, nothing but verse 9. An angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. Uh, I'm stumbling along here because I'm reading ESV, not King James. And uh, I decided let's stick with the ESV Though most of us have this memorized just like Linus and Peanuts did when he gave the Christmas story, right? In the good old King James, or as some refer to as King Jimmy. Um, what difference does it make that these men are here, the angel of the Lord appears to them? Why them? We don't know. Uh, it must have been quite spectacular because there's this glory of the Lord shining around them. They're filled with great fear. And then the angel right out of the gate says, Fear not. Why? For behold, I bring you good news, that's good, of great joy, that's even better, that will be for all people, not just them. They happen to be the first to hear about it. So the opening line is fear not. Why? Because the angel's there with good news. And if we were to go backward in Scripture from this record backward, Every single time any human being ever encountered God or an angel is the same thing. They're scared to death. And I think I'd be scared to death too. I can be scared, not to death, but pretty scared with just a bump in the night. I've I've never, I startle easy. People, People that know that use that against me sometimes. It's a lot of fun to watch me jump. Uh, When I moved out of, the house into a dorm and another dorm and then one more dorm and then finally got my own place. It was a parsonage, but it was about six months before I brought uh, my wife home. We had to get married first, right? Um, You should see the look on her face. (laughs) Of course. Um, There's this space of time where I'm out in the county in a big house built in the 40s, it creaks a lot. And they've got a whole slew of black Angus cows behind the house, not very far. And one evening, I, I come, and I'd forgotten to turn the porch light on, so it's dark, there's no moon. And I reach about to the screen door on the back. And by the way, this parsonage that I'm referring to looked exactly like the one that was over here. It was the same floor plan built by the same Christian church. Um, so... Maybe you can imagine the back screen porch where the back little room was had our washer and dryer back there. And about the time my thumb touches the little button, 
one of those big black Angus cows does where they just blow all the, the air out of their, their lungs just to let you know, hey, I'm standing right here. I mean, maybe an arm's length. And I, it was the first time I, I totally paralyzed. I had no idea what to do. There was a street light, and my eyes were adjusting enough to see his silhouette and how big he was. And then quick as a wink, kind of like, you know, the reindeer on the roof, he ran through the woods as if to take every tree out. You know, I, I don't know how they do it and survive, but it just sounded like he broke every limb. So I went inside, collected myself, and called the man that owned the cows. All of that's just to uh, illustrate. And they were filled with great fear. <laughs> that's an angel. I'm scared to death because of a cow. So what does he say? Verse 11, what's the good news that can overcome the great fear? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ. That means the Messiah, the Lord. That's the good news. That's the news. If it's true, and if we understand its ramifications, that good news cancels out all great fear. There's nothing to fear if this is true. Now, in verse 12, as if to say, shepherds, you don't need to just take our word for it. There's a sign. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And this is why I think that a manger is unusual as a bed for children. I think everybody would agree. A feed trough's not where you put a baby unless that's all you've got. But if you're angels telling a group of shepherds to go see for yourself. It's helpful if you can say, hey, can't miss him. It's the only baby in Bethlehem in swaddling clothes lying in a manger, a feed trough. That's where you'll find him. And then as soon as it said, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's like they just can't help it. We can't tell the world that their Messiah has come with just an angel and just shepherds. We've got to show off a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and, and saying. Now, what is meant by peace on earth, goodwill toward men? That's the King James. And then the ESV here, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace is really the, the key idea and that is exceptional because peace doesn't exist naturally. The world already knew it at this point, and we know it even better on the other side of two world wars. In fact, they're warring in Israel now. Uh, and, and talking about open warfare, that's probably somewhere out there, and I don't know how many of us were enlisted in the armed services um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we know the war exists in our own hearts. It's, it's tough sometimes to have dinner as a family, much less together as, the, as extended family. I mean, I know folks who don't appreciate December because it means they've got to go to a war zone in order to, you know, keep up the tradition. Things have gone sour. It's not, it's not right. But in this case, the good news of great joy involves a Savior 
who is here to make peace between God and man, to cancel out once for all the curse of sin. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And I like the way the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible, it's not a Christmas book, it's a Bible for children, but it's a, in storybook fashion. It's not an actual translation of Scripture, but in other words, on those themes. And it's this section... It's titled, The One Upon Whom Everything Would Depend. That if the world is in need of a Savior, this is their only hope. It all depends on this little Hebrew baby born in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. So that's the Christmas story. We know it well. But uh, let's, let's transition over into asking ourselves, okay, do we know what it means? as well as we know how it goes. Be easy enough to just rehearse it. We're all familiar enough with it. Uh, let sentimentality and nostalgia kick in, uh, and we'll leave with warm fuzzies. But is that all that we need? Um, this is why I mentioned sometimes it's, it's, it's a good practice not to let our heart hijack our head we still need to think through this, especially if some of these pieces uh, have yet to fall into place or we don't know the story as well as others. Stepping aside of the story and all that we've attached to it along the way by means of tradition, it's not enough to feel our way through. Let me read to you what John said. This was one of Christ's disciples. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the last one. He's different than the rest. And he doesn't give us an account of Christ's birth. He starts his, his, his book out differently. We spent well over a year studying all this. But this is verse 1 of John's gospel. That which was from the beginning. So it sounds like a lot like Genesis opening. And that's what it's meant to do. He said that which was from the beginning. And that would be the one who made everything that is. So he's referring to God here. And then he says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, which is another way to refer to God. I want to say, wait a minute, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, what is he talking about? He's talking about God, but then he used terms like heard. Okay, well, Moses heard, the people of Israel heard. Every, lots of people have heard from God. Seen him? Okay, maybe pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. But have touched with our hands? This life was manifest, verse 2. We have seen it, testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made known to us. So he's saying, yes, he's God. He was in heaven, but he came down here to earth, and we knew him. We saw him with our eyes. We heard him with our ears. We touched him with our hands. He's talking about none other than Jesus Christ, all God and all man at the same time. The thing that Hebrew theology would have a massive problem with. Now think about that. You're God's people for millennia, and God has been telling you in veiled terms, I'm going to give you a king. He doesn't spell it out, but in these few little places that seem weird until Lo and behold, they all make sense later after this boy is born in Bethlehem. It took a long time for a lot of people to trust God at his word. And the Jewish nation, for the most part, still holds their position of rejecting 
all of these things, still looking for their Messiah. So it's complicated in some ways. But if we keep reading on, that which we have seen and have heard, we proclaim to you also. So this man who saw Jesus, considers him to be God, saw all the miracles, saw him walk on water, saw him raise the dead, saw him raised from the dead. He says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may believe with us. And indeed, our belief, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things, why? That your joy may be complete. Same thing the angels were saying. This is the best news ever. This is the source of joy, if there is such a thing. So what does it mean? It means the story of Christmas means that God went to infinite lengths not only to offer you an eternal existence that was forfeited in the Garden of Eden, but to make himself known to you, coming here himself. This is a point where if you had that Bible time machine, you know, it should be a lot of fun. Remember Superbook? That was a cartoon where they actually, you know, the Bible itself was like a time machine. And then there was, uh, what was the other one? You're going to have to be like 40-something to understand this. Uh, Flying House. Remember they got it and they'd go back in Bible times and, and like walk around. If we had something like that, what do you think Abraham, who was told of God, visited by angels. Uh, An angel stopped his hand when he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, which God told him to do, but had an animal over here all along to be the sacrifice. That guy, father of the Hebrew nation, or Moses, burning bush, um, received the Ten Commandments written by the, the finger of God, saw a little bit of the backside of God through a crack in a rock is the way it's explained to us. And just that, washed his face so white and bright that he had to put a veil on it so everybody at the bottom of the mountain wouldn't freak out when he came down to deliver the Ten Commandments. You got Elijah called down fire from heaven you know, to, to confound the, the prophets of Baal. Everybody's praying the real God will answer with fire. Okay, and God actually gives fire got these Old Testament people who've seen glimpses of God, or all the people in the wilderness that saw the pillar of fire by night. Could they sit through a church service where we talk about how the angels came and said, okay, change of plans. You can't be good. God's going to come down here himself and be good for you so you don't have to suffer for eternity. And you'll see his face, hear his voice, touch his body. He's here. Instead of one day, maybe someday. Could they keep quiet about all this? Could they sit and hear the story they've heard since they were a kid? And they've never heard it since they were a kid. This is way before all that. Sometimes it's good to just say, do we really know what we're talking about at Christmas? And if it's really real, should it really make a real difference in our lives? Uh Uh-huh. Good news. Great joy. No more fear. Why? Because he's going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. So what John is describing here in the opening of his gospel is the basis of his personal testimony. His personal testimony is this baby born in in Bethlehem really did these miracles. And we really saw him, we really heard him, and we're really telling you that you can really believe that this is really real. That's what John is saying. 
So then you think, okay, back up a bit. We're, we went from Christmas, everybody's happy with. Preacher ruined a little bit of it, especially the greeting card I just sent to Grandma. Then he said that he shouldn't have said about his wife as a joke that embarrassed his wife. Then we started talking about John, that it's really real. And we're getting on the border of, you know, the metaphysical. And there's all kinds of scientists will tell you that all this stuff is real if you mean real as in it's chemical reactions in your brain, very sophisticated organ, and neurological pathways where these neurons and these neurotransmitters record your experiences, you process them, and that's where all of this exists. But other than that, it's not tied to anything else. When your metabolic motor ceases to function. Well, that's the end of that reality. And until anyone no longer exists that doesn't remember it along with you, it it never existed. It's not real in the sense that you think it's real. And if I ruin the Christmas story, I think the scientist ruins my life. (laughs) You tell me it's not real? Really? Really? This is just a cruel experiment that happened out of nowhere. It's an accident. There's all different kinds of ways that we could throw up to try to play ping pong pong back and forth with this type of thinking. But I think a few years ago I, I brought this up. There is a book that was published in 1986. Um, I remember when a copy was given to my mother... When my youngest brother, there's 11 years between us, was, was born. And I know that Corey's mother had one, though Corey was born in 1986, so it was new then. You probably, many of you have a copy. There's been 37 million copies sold since 1986. But it's a little children's book, and it's called I Love You Forever. It's got the little kid sitting in the floor in the bathroom holding up a toilet paper tube and a watch. And he's made a mess out of the whole bathroom. Do you think you'll ever talk a mother out of, I will love you forever? I'll like you for always. As long as I live, my baby you'll be. No. Because it is forever. And why do we feel that way? Because we learned in Genesis just weeks ago that we're made in God's image. God is love, so he gave us that as standard equipment. It's not nothing. And in his wonderful design, we do process this with our neurotransmitters. But then we learn of God not having a body, and then God having a body in Jesus. So he knows what it's like. And when we see him again, there will be nail prints in his hands with a glorified body where he still eats, but he can do things like walk through walls. So there is nothing that precludes logic that God could become part of his own creation. He's God. He can do that. Though everything precludes the logic of us deciding we want to be God, say, tomorrow or wake up God on Christmas morning. There's only one God. So there could not be any bigger themes than what we're reading through the Christmas story. 
So let me close with a few questions. I'll turn this over to David. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the child on whom everything would depend? Do you believe that every story in the Bible whispers his name in some way? The book is about him. It's either leading up to or following after. Do you believe that Jesus wrote himself into his own story? That's have to be the way it would be, right? God made everything out of nothing. And then he's the ultimate writer. But it features himself as our Savior as well. Do you believe that Jesus is the good news that can take man from great fear to great joy through salvation? And if you answer yes to all these questions, what prevents you, if you haven't already, receiving the gift of Christmas by declaring your dependence on the Savior of the world? To have what He came to give you only requires your repentance. That's just saying the same thing about sin that He says about sin. Yep, guilty. And then believing the story by faith on the basis of eyewitnesses about two millennia ago. You say, well, I want to check out those witnesses. Stick around. We do that every Sunday. Why would we stake the substance of I'll love you forever on an old book if it doesn't make sense if it can't be verified now no, there's people who argue this into the ground we don't argue it into the ground we preach it and sing it and share it with each other all the time hopefully when we're dead someone can say all they did was preach that book into the ground that'd be great wouldn't it but merry christmas this is a christmas story good news great joy which dispels all fear. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another installment in this story of your plan to redeem mankind. Lord, it stretches our brains sometimes to the point that it hurts. Lord, we doubt these things sometimes only because we're human and these touch on reference points we we don't possess. But Lord, the story resonates with our hearts as if it's from the same cloth. Lord, would you reveal yourself to us, perhaps in ways you never have, even through means such as pain or suffering that only make this life more real than it was before. But Lord, would you focus our gaze on your face this Christmas season? Would we be diligent to do our study and to reference, cross-reference, examine, take apart, put back together, all for the purpose of perhaps being useful to someone who's putting their life together and need answers to these very big questions. Lord, bless our homes and our, our days and weeks ahead. May they be happy homes and that for your glory. And Lord, for those who are asking questions, Lord, would you give them answers? We ask all this in the strong, blessed name of Jesus, changed our lives forever. We ask this in your name. Amen.